What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Run Your Mouth podcast, first episode of the new year, and we are back with Sexy Professor Lady, here to guide us, give us her wisdom, her professor knowledge, and hopefully help us all have a, a better new year. Welcome back to the show. <laughs> Hi, Rob. Thanks for having me. And you're changing things up. You are done with college. You're I'm like, done. You're yeah. like, fuck this institution. I don't want to be a part of what they're doing. Lay it on us. It's, it's a miserable wreck of a sinking ship, and I don't want to be seat buckled into it uh, while it goes down, <sighs> I could go into great detail as to how degenerate the university system has actually become. But in general, I just want to give you the short version, which is that the the administration has become impossible to work with. They have offices, entire divisions of the university are now devoted to diversity and inclusivity, which means that there's infinite amounts of paperwork to fall, you know, fill out regarding um, biases among students and progress of certain demographics of students that we're supposed to keep a special eye on. In your academia, you're supposed to like paperwork. <laughs> uh, not me. Uh, I like I like reading books, but I hate paperwork. So I think that that's, uh, that's I'm leaving. It's, it's become... Um, a processing institution conditioning people to not think about anything. And now, how many years have you been a teacher for? 20. 20. So for how many years would you say you actually liked that gig? 19. So up until this past year, in this past year, there's been institutional changes where you're like, yeah. this is aberrant. I cannot be a part of this and I have to leave. Well, it's kind of like the straw that broke the camel's back. It wasn't just one thing that, that went bad. It was... Um, in general, a trend. And so I think that it's very, um, there, there, there's less integrity, there's less honesty, there's less hard work. When you take a look at, if you go back to um, the early 1800s and you take a look at like the entrance exams to, you know, Harvard or something like that, these are, you know, 19th century entrance exams to colleges. They had to know how to compose in both Greek and Latin before getting into college, let alone like learning that while you're in college. So college has been dumbed down. It's basically 13th grade for four years. And uh, it, it's it's a it's a babysitting session. Um, I'm expected to tow a narrative I don't believe in and uh, a system, like I'm complicit in a system that I believe to be actually contributing to the degradation of humanity's ability to think not to a positive civilization so you know I, I want people to think outside the box i want people to do what bob murphy does you know and and think about possible solutions that aren't government related and they can't like they so just can't i mean really i mean what's sad about this is you got into education people don't go into education to be rich they do it because especially with the topics that you picked you did it because you're passionate and you love philosophy and you wanted to teach it and now you're seeing that the college institu institution has become so mentally corrupt. You're like, I'm contributing to a bad system. I got to get out of here. I got to change things up. Right. So now it sounds to me, though, that you're still pretty passionate about philosophy and that you'd like to educate. Very so are you so. considering other institutions that might be more in line with what your values might be? I don't know the college system. So I don't know if like a school exists that's a little bit more, you know, not boxed in or what's the plan? There are some um, smaller institutions that are um, religious or parochial in some nature that would probably provide like a viable uh, opportunity for me to continue teaching in the classroom. Or I could look at options that involve online teaching uh, where you don't have to necessarily deal with like the politics of the departments quite 
to the extent that I had to. And so, uh, but what I... You're kind of going the way I went with as a comedian, that you're like, fuck it, I'm going to build my own audience. Right. That's what you're trying to do as an educator is go, hey, I... I know philosophy and I'd like to teach people philosophy, but I don't want to do it within the school system anymore. Fuck the bureaucracy. I'm going to be a freelance philosophy professor. Podcasting. Yeah. <laughs> That's really the only outlet for uh, what I have to well, say. Well, let me tell you, it's unbelievably lucrative. So it, this is definitely <laughs> the kind of thing you can do and just quit your job. I mean, I didn't even wait three years to make no money on this before I quit my day job. <laughs> That's so why. you got a great plan. I mean, That's why I'll probably end up bartending in the meantime. But I just just to get out from the toxic uh, umbrella of the university system will be so mentally healthy for me. Yeah, it's just it's something that I can no longer look myself straight in the eye in the mirror in the morning and go off and teach these kids a bunch of you know I mean like I I'm teaching Plato and Aristotle and Descartes and you know Saint Augustine and a bunch of other really important people who are not they're they're based and they're not um, corrupted they're not converge they're not like there's nothing wrong with these people and everybody needs to know what these people say but the university system doesn't think that anymore so they're within five of the institutions that i've worked for in the past 20 years they no longer have an ancient or a medieval philosopher on their faculty anymore so that's a lot like that's a big deal because that's where philosophy began so if you're if you're going to have a philosophy department and they are no longer going to teach from the base, which yeah. is, you know, start with the ancients, start with the, you know, start with that and then move to the medieval and then move to the modern and then move to the contemporary. What they're doing is they're replacing philosophy with women and gender studies, um, environmental citizenship, Africana studies, you know, like everything that's pretty much worthless. Stupid horseshit. Yeah. People are majoring horseshit. in stupid horseshit. Complete, and you're like, I'm not going to be here and st- teach stupid horseshit. That's not Hor- what I got into this for. See, at least horseshit can fertilize something, like a yeah. field. You know, <laughs> this stuff can't do anything. It's, it's worse than horseshit. And you're like, we're rotting people's minds here. It's not even bat shit because bat shit is actually full of nitrogen. It's great for grapevines and other. Type. I learned that in Ace Ventura too with the the, yeah. gu- the guano or whatever. <laughs> guano, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it, so what what's going to be fun for you? Because I've quit a lot of jobs because I'm a miserable prick of a human being and I'm very angry. And the one nice thing about quitting jobs is even when you get to the next one and it's worse, at least it's not the old thing. So I find <laughs> yeah. that things are. Um, I guess part of what drives me crazy about jobs or structures is the repetitive nature of things so even if something's worth like in other words i can go have to scrub shit out of a toilet but if i've never done that before that's better than working in a fucking excel spreadsheet true yeah so but but that's only because i've been in an excel spreadsheet so many times i'm like i don't want to have to put one more number into this fucking spreadsheet so uh you might find for a stretch of time bartending is is great you get firstly you like to drink so you get to yeah. be out. You get to drink. Hell yeah! You, might, you ever uh, you ever read Dilbert at all? Oh yeah. I always loved the character. The garbage man in Dilbert was like a engineer, like a brilliant engineer. And ever since I was a kid, I loved the character of like the genius people who are just kind of in non genius jobs or just like in support <laughs> roles kind of thing. Yeah. So you're, you'll kind of be that person as a as a bartender. Well, I like people. Yeah. And I know my alcohol, so. Um and I, I like to talk. I always thought that uh, when I was a you know first studying Greek language, I thought, hey, I'm, one of these days I'm going to have a bar called the Symposium. Okay. Because the Symposium is my favorite Platonic dialogue. Mm-hmm. Uh, it means drinking together, which is a perfect name for a bar, and um, it's probably the most famous Platonic dialogue. And it's uh, all they do throughout the entire dialogue is talk about what love is. 
I got an idea for you for a web series. Okay. Like bar talk philosophy or philosophy at the bar. Yeah. You do really short lessons. You keep it under five minutes. You do it at the bar. And then like you take a shot or even do it like <laughs> with whoever the random at your bar is like, hey, I want to teach you this one thing. You keep it under five minutes. You do it super digestible. Do it daily. Get it up on YouTube. Good idea. I will start doing that. All right, let's call it a podcast. I want to cut though. I want like uh, <laughs> I want at least twenty five percent. Harrington, what should I be taking as a percentage just for that idea? You, you want to produce it? Ten percent? You, That's you it? should. Uh, okay. And I'll do all the heavy lifting. There you go. <laughs> you have to be a guest at least uh, three times on my podcast. Then I'm. I'll come on anytime. Sweet. Sexy professor lady. That takes nothing <laughs> else more than an invite. Um, all right. So before we get into uh, Basti, is it Bastiat? Bastiat. Ba- Bastiat. I, I think is the Bastiat. Yeah. Okay. That's how most normal people pronounce it. With the first podcast of the new decade. Yes. Um, other than starting a career in education, uh, I wanted to know what would you say are your biggest regrets of the last decade, and what do you think were some of the best investments that you made? Like not not just money, but like time or skill set, where you're like, I'm really happy that I did that. Or maybe right. it was all bad. Maybe uh, maybe education just went to shit, and you're like, I really fucked up that decade. I think I fucked up that decade um, quite a bit, actually. Um, I mean, I did get my PhD. Some people think that's an investment. I see it as a trophy that's relatively useless in today's world. Right. Because you can be completely successful. You can be, uh, you can you can have great ideas and you can talk about them now on the internet and you don't have to have a degree in that kind of stuff. In fact, right. I almost see it as that's a like detraction. That's like me, I'm a fucking idiot. You're not a fucking idiot. <laughs> well, like, I mean, I wouldn't I get, be talking to you if you were a fucking right, idiot. That's sweet of you. <laughs> I feel good again. <laughs> uh, you're Academically, very... I mostly failed out of college, <laughs> but that's exactly the point is that I can, I guess, speak with some sort of authority on issues um independent of the fact that i have no academic accolades to support that i'm worth listening to no you can think and it's pretty evident that you can think because i can see you thinking when you're thinking and i can see you thinking i'm part of the problem i can see you thinking on this podcast i can see you thinking when you're thinking and it's great it's awesome most people can't do that so you deserve a voice and that's why you have a following because people can see that you have something that most normal people don't have because let's call it an episode i feel good <laughs> <laughs> 13 years i mean for 13 years from kindergarten through 12th grade yeah. children are taught to not think they're taught to swallow <laughs> Just you know, just just take this in, digest it, regurgitate it on a test. Uh, it's bulimic education. You know, bulimia. For those of you who are not familiar with, it's a it's a eating disorder where you gorge and then purge. So you you gorge yourself and then you purge. That's exactly how the schooling system is set up, K through twelve. You gorge and then purge. So you memorize a bunch of stuff. You regurgitate it on a test. You'll never think about it ever again in your life. You'll never need it again in your life. You know all the 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 dates and the names that you had to memorize for history and all the polyatomic ions and chemistry and all the the equations that you had to memorize for chemistry and physics and all that stuff. Like like ninety nine point nine percent of people never need that at all in the future. So what's it all for? Well, it's conditioning. I, yeah. Um, I got to say, I'm I'm very bitter about my schooling experience because, firstly, I really thought I was... I'm not going to say... No, it's not so much that I thought I was dumb because there were some courses that I did really well with. The biggest problem with school is that it forces you to take some courses, even when you're young, that you're not interested in and actually have absolutely nothing to do with the skills that 
you will need in your life or skills that you require for an income. One of the best examples I would say is high school chemistry. I got through high school chemistry to this day. I couldn't really tell you what high school chemistry is. I got through because the person teaching the class, to be honest, he didn't want to get fired. So he cheated on all of our regents, which means when I got a 65 on the regents, I didn't really get a 65. There was literally no reason for me to have to suffer at age 14 through a chemistry class and even try and wrap my head around it. I had no interest in the subject. And if anything, what you're interested in is a fairly good guiding light for what you should invest your time in, because that's evident of the fact that if you're usually if you're interested, there's some sort of a skill level there. or There's some sort of like a natural aptitude, which probably means that you can excel at it and then profit off that skill set. And so school, firstly, another thing with school, I don't learn in a classroom. The classes that I did well in, I did not show up. I can sit down with the textbook and figure out material and learn it on my own schedule. I'm just telling you, I have ADD. I'm also like anxious. I cannot sit in a classroom and listen to a teacher and learn in in any capacity. It's just not the way that I process and absorb information. I'm just like uncomfortable sitting there. So I want to take a bathroom break and like, so in other words, me being in school wasted my time during the day when I could have figured, I, I literally, I probably could have finished what I did in school within two years if it was all online learning and I could do it on my schedule. Like, and so firstly, they, I, I'm just telling you, I took a heavy toll on my self-confidence because I, f- I failed out at the end of school. Like it really became bad. And it's just, it, it's just because it wasn't a good learning environment for me. And they were a hundred percent wrong about the skills that you need to make an income. I can tell you that within one week at a sales job, I learned more skills that I've made a fair amount of income on than anything I learned in 20 years of school. Well, and that's, you're, you're one of many, like thousands and hundreds of thousands, millions of children who feel the exact same way. And I see these people come into college and, you know, after 13 years of school, you would think that if the school was actually doing what they said that they were doing, which is preparing people for their professional life, which is actually showing them what they might be interested in, then they would come to college and they would know exactly what their major was going to be and they would know exactly what to go into and what to study and they would be passionate about it. And that's not true. Like, none of that's true. They're more confused than ever when they get to college because they've been exposed to so much different stuff, most of which is irrelevant. Yeah. So they're not, like, I, I, I mean, I've had college students, this is not a joke, I've had college students come up to me during my office hours and ask me, how to do laundry. <laughs> I'm not like that. It sounds it You're like sounds I'm your stupid. philosophy professor. <laughs> well, I guess I'm approachable, you yeah. know, like they, they, they feel like they can ask me. I mean, I get, I get a bunch of uh, relationship questions. I have people, I have a couch in my office. That's so a little bit more fair though, because that can <laughs> yeah. theoretically kind of fall under the label of philosophy. The philosophy that you're thinking about what a relationship should be. And that maybe you could academically guide them with, Hey, you're thinking about the big questions and here's some framework right. by which you can think about it. But laundry is just, I, I mean, firstly, the number one thing you can learn in life is how to go onto Google and YouTube and self-teach <laughs> yourself how to do something. Well, the, if you've got to ask a professor about laundry, oh man, yes. you're, you got to have a rough time in life. Well, admittedly, this was probably about, I don't know, maybe 12 years ago or so. So it was, it was a I was younger and I was closer to the students. And this, that guy was just trying to sleep with you. And it was a girl. Oh, uh, well, she was trying to. <laughs> no, I respect I, it I, even more. Yeah, well, maybe. She should have gone to wash some panties. She, <laughs> oh, that's nasty. Um, but I mean, I've had students ask me how to open like a bank account or take out a loan for their college, for their college tuition. So it's like, all right, so so they're not learning how to do basic banking things I have a, in school. I, I have a joke. I, I just had to cut it out of my act. I'm working on a new joke about 
how bad school was in terms of giving us advice for life. But I just confronted, or I'm still working on, no one in my life told me that if you were a W-9 employee, there's a thing called quarterly taxes. I was unaware of that. Yeah. Now, that is, I put aside money to pay the government. I didn't pay them when they were expecting it. And there'll be fines and interest that I have to pay to them because Hmm. I wasn't aware of that. The fact that you can get through a finance degree. I have a finance degree from college and that that never came up like... There, you could, there should really, the fact, most kids, I'm actually more sophisticated with money than most people are, even though I'm, I'm compulsive and I'm dumb, but at least like I understand money. Most people don't even really have a full understanding of why they probably shouldn't just open up a credit card. The fact that school doesn't at least have like a class and like, they should just have a how to not be a dummy class. You could do it your first semester of college, just the simple things, hey, you should probably know this. Or, and I've fantasized about having one of those classes uh, to teach myself, you know, how to send an email to your professor. Don't say, hey. Right. (laughs) Like, that seems like a pretty basic, like, thing. But don't say, hey, I was wondering when, you know, uh, our papers are due. And my response is nothing, because presumably you can read enough to read the syllabus. Right. The answer is already there. It's provided to you on the first day of class. So I don't repeat myself. I make a rule of that. Like if it's, if the information is already there, I will not respond to you. So there's a lot of like, I I think that there's a lot of um, laziness that comes out of the, the schooling system as it exists right now. And, and there's a lot of irrelevancies that, that are bred into people. Um, They don't know how to do research. They don't know how to look things up. There's no willpower to go out and to initiate anything. So it's basically you're, uh, you, you just kind of like you go through the schooling system and you're waiting for somebody to kind of snatch you out of the pond like a fish, you know, and pull you into their workplace and say, you're the person I want to work here. So you're not actually specifically developing any kind of unique skills or finding yourself as an, as an individual. Um, they're not, nobody's taught entrepreneurship. Nobody's taught how to do their taxes. These are basic survival skills yeah. like in the world. And they're not taught any of that. It's like more important that you know what year the, I don't know, some some bill some law was passed like you know when when was Plessy versus Ferguson like who the fuck cares like nobody cares about that stuff um but it's important that you know the date I took a dance class though well then that's really come in handy we'll have to put that to the test no I I, you know I took the dance class because I was like when I go out to bars I don't know how to grind with women maybe if I take this college dance class dance 101 I'll know how to handle myself what kind of dance was it no, it was like stretching and formations. It oh. was like, I, I can't quite... So kind of ballet-ish? No, it wasn't ballet-ish, but, um, you know, between that or having to take art history, I'm a lazy person, and I preferred to show up to this class without homework, and I got an A, which helped my <laughs> GPA, um, and it was my only class on Friday, so I would just smoke weed and just stare so down the teacher. So you must have got the grinding on women part pretty no they didn't do it there was no grinding i thought i thought it was gonna be nothing but i figured if i I get through uh, or i figured i learned a little ballroom so i get stuck in that situation or maybe some i don't know what that is oh it's ballroom oh okay maybe a little tango yeah a little waltz i figured i'd pick up some of the classics i don't even remember it wasn't that it was like uh i don't know what it was but it wasn't that (laughs) all right let's get into bastiat a little bit okay uh you were the first person that brought it up to me from what right. I understand, he is a libertarian icon. Uh, one of the things that's fun to me about doing part of the problem is that most of the audience is 
significantly better read in the libertarian literature than I am. Uh, and also, like, I've, I've bought, and I still haven't read it, Democracy, the God that Failed, and also Human Action. They're on my shelf. I'd like to read them, but then I also do stand-up comedy and have a job in sales that I'm completely unqualified for. And so I'm frequently like, I got to read, like, these other things that, and I got to read the news every day to be honest. So I don't really get to those things. I think hopefully I will, but then also I got to be honest more often than not when I open them, I'm like from hanging out with Dave, I already kind of know the general idea of what's in here and these don't really speak to me. And so I kind of get bored and feel like it's more homework than it is a joy to read. Okay. But let's get into Bastiat here. Sure. And so first, if you could give us the scoop on who he was and like, why he's so important, and then even where the hell he falls into history, because I didn't pick up on where okay. this was coming, like, where where he was. I didn't know. Yeah. Uh, Basiat, um, I think he was born in 1800 and died, he died young. He was only 49 years old when he passed away. And he, I th- people think that he died of throat cancer because he could not speak or talk for, like, the last year of his life. Um, and he was, he lived in, wrote in France, and he was actually from the country in France. Um but then he moved to Paris. And so it wasn't until like later in life that he moved to Paris and he started... Where did he um, move to Paris from? The, the, the southwestern portion of France. Oh, okay. Like right near the Spanish border. So what was going on? I, this is how little history I know. What was going on in the 1800s? Well, like what, it was what, yeah. the, the immediate aftermath of the French Revolution. Okay. And then um, Bastiat saw in... Uh, 1848 was like the second quasi revolution. It was okay. like a like a like the second ripple of the revolution. So he was um, instrumental in bringing to consciousness a lot of the ideas that we would now call ca- classical liberalism in France. Okay. So um, the the ideas of like free markets and the importance of small government and uh, small bureaucracy as small as possible. You know, let the let the farmers make decisions for the farmers. Let the shoemakers make decisions for the shoemakers and that kind of thing. So, so, so now in my ignorance, I somewhat remember from high school history that I guess um, democracy as we know it was somewhat born out of the French Revolution, and I think the name Robespierre came up both in his. Um, thing and that's also one of the names I kind of remember and then I also remember there was the guillotine and that they took off a shit ton of people's heads also while somewhat making proclamations of freedom and then I think Napoleon fits into all of this so help me out here I'm throwing right. a bunch <laughs> of random shit out and you piece it together let me know where <laughs> what, what what's going on in this time period okay well I'm not a historian yeah and in fact I've been bad at history like like really bad but I think I got this right okay so there was the American Revolution. Mm-hmm. We got a country somewhere like 1776, I think they think that's when it was signed. Um, then after that, there was the French Revolution, not like 10 years, I think. It, it's like relatively close period of time, if I'm not mistaken. Like so the French Revolution is after... After the American Revolution. I, now, I always thought um, the American revolutionary thinkers took some of their guiding principles for liberty from some like earlier French thinkers. Maybe I'm just uh, wasn't yeah. John Locke was perhaps the most major thinker that influenced uh, Thomas Jefferson. So in the T- in Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson says that you know we we hold these truths to be self evident that um, we are granted by our Creator the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That from kind of that, was, that yeah. was John Locke. From the little I've read from the founding fathers, I really don't like Madison. I really don't like <laughs> the people from the Federalist Papers. 
I find that Jefferson was a shitty human being, and so he kind of understood that people were pieces of shit, and so he had a better understanding of how to organize them so that you could create <laughs> structures by which um, bad people wouldn't be more exploitive because he understood the weaker nature of man. That's my general perception of Jefferson and the founding fathers. Well, I, I think that that's probably true of Jefferson. Um, I think that they were all shitty people because they gave us a government period. You know, we, this was like a, a, a moment in history where we could have split and said, all right, you know, you do your thing. I'll do my thing. We'll I'll do our own things. We're in a like raw new world. There's nobody over here. Savages, you know, like Native Americans and stuff. Like, yeah. that. like we can, you know, work around them. Uh, so we, we, we had a, an opportunity to have a, what, what was like a truly libertarian society. And they screwed us over, you know, by the creation of the constitution after they destroyed the articles of confederation. So, um, I don't necessarily like want to go into the entire yeah. history of the Articles and Confederation and all that stuff, but um, the French people, I mean, they 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 were kind of on a similar track, like philosophy wise, um, which is why I think that there's there's a parallel there. So you have the revolution that follows our revolution, and you have people like like Friedrich Bastiat. Talking to the mic, but I'm listening. Sorry. Is, yeah. Okay, we're good. Um, so uh, we have we have. Uh, people like Bastiat in France and Lysander Spooner in America. And they're parallel personalities, except that Bastiat is a minarchist and uh, Lysander Spooner is a complete anarchist. And of course, in the United States, they they were they were during that same period of time struggling with the issue of slavery. So then it's only in the second half of the 19th century that you have uh, the Civil War that takes place um, partially related to the issue of slavery and Spooner was a, a, a an absolute abolitionist. I mean, he was an ab- abolitionist of slavery, but of the government entirely. He's like, don't just abolish slavery, abolish the institution that enabled slavery, abolish it all. He was abolished the United States Postal Service. I don't, not a whole, we should maybe talk about Spooner at a, like a different conversation because he's like fascinating dude because he created a postal service outside of the U.S. Postal Service that was faster, um, more efficient, cheaper, and the mail arrived uh, in better condition. As I said, shut it down. They shut it down. Yeah, yeah. of course. Like lawsuits, they, they took, completely shut the dude down because uh, the government does not like competition. They are a monopoly. So... So the French, how do the French fit into this? Well, um, Bastiat was writing around the same time as Lysander Spooner, and it was in the aftermath of the French Revolution, where you said that heads were rolling from the guillotine. You're absolutely correct about that. Um, It was a brutal rationalist revolution. They thought that they could take the principles of philosophy and institute them, like build a society based on purely rational principles. They wanted to turn the the days of the week like we have a seven day week to they ten right to turn it to ten right yeah I remember that they to completely revolutionize the calendar and change the the number of days in a month that's some real the- OCD thinking we're like if we're just on a ten day schedule everything will work out <laughs> that's what's been going wrong we've been resetting at seven I need tens I need the even numbers and they want it to be rational you know? <laughs> yeah, it had yeah. to be calculable rational and uh, you know so so like there were thinkers from now on were- anyone opening a door they got to check the lock <laughs> three times not two times 
times. That's not going to work. <laughs> you got to tap it and then you got to go home at lunch to make sure that you tap it because you might have forgot to tap it and then your mom might be dead because of it. I don't know. Uh, yeah, there's all that kind of stuff going on in the French Revolution and, and it sucks uh, because there were a lot of like even philosophers that were drawn up into the French Revolution like the Germans were drawn into the French Revolution because they thought, wow, look at these people like they're they're making this whole like radical uh, rational revolution. We can have a republic that's the same as you know, like yeah. like that. And and um, you know, they say that the German. The only reason the Germans didn't have a revolution to follow the French was because of Kant, <laughs> because Kant came. Uh, sorry, I'm getting really nerdy no, no, right go now. For it. But Kant came out with the three critiques: the critique of pure reason, the critique of practical judgment, and the critique of. Um, or sorry, uh, pure was a reason, German practical reason, right? and then a judgment. Uh, yes, he was German. Yeah, in the in the nineteenth um, century. So is this like the same? Because I, I always kind of in my head affiliate Kant and Nietzsche as like the big German philosophers. So are we talking all within the same basic time period? Nietzsche comes right after Kant. Nietzsche is the pivotal figure between the modern and the contemporary ages in philosophy. So yeah. he spans like he was. I think he was. Um, he was writing actively in the the end of the eighteen hundreds, beginning of the nineteen hundreds. Do you ever uh, you ever read the book The Crowd? No. Really small book. Do you mind, uh, Harrington? Do you mind googling who wrote that? I'm just curious to know if you came across that philosopher at all. The Crowd is. Um, it's really worth reading. Firstly, he's like the first person to really write against school. And I guess school, the way we have it now, is somewhat uh, from like the Prussian system. Yes. But he talks about how it's like just indoctrinating kids. And he also talks about how um, people following their own interests, then that's how they get inspired to learn more and excel. But what the book is about more than anything is how um, mass group of people no longer rely on logic. Um, and so it's, um, it's by Gustav Le Bon. No, I never heard of it. I recommend it. That that book is so okay. worthwhile. It's like the first book that kind of studies, um, I guess, not really, I, I'm going to say propaganda and how leaders are able to manipulate crowds. And it's in part that crowds are irrational. Um, and you know what? I haven't read it for a while. I'm just, if you're listening to this podcast, the guy's a brilliant thinker. It's a short book and it's worth reading. And you as a person who thinks about this, it's definitely worth reading. And I think he also falls into the same time period, which was the only reason I brought it up. But let's go back to Bastiat here for a second. Before I do that, yeah. can I just toss in one point? Um, Socrates was very, very fixated on like one-to-one -one personal conversation or small groups of people like he would approach you know like a, a circle of people and but he would never walk into the assembly and i think it's for the reasons i i'm i haven't read the book that you uh just recommended but um i i, I can probably anticipate some of the large ideas, crowds like, are stirred by emotion and not logic yes yeah there's like a an emotional mental so that's why socrates never went into the assembly the assembly was the popular gathering of all the athenian citizens uh and so they would they would decide on public policy issues there and you know whether to go to war or not whether to build the bridge or not and people were recognized for their speaking abilities within the Athenian assembly Socrates never went into the Athenian assembly not once it was expected required of Athenian citizens to do so he never did because he knew that approaching people in a group you don't get individual independent thought you don't get people to actually consider all of the evidence you don't get them to think you don't get them uh to to follow the reasoning the chain of reasoning process you get emotion 
you get sheer emotion. If people like standing around you are clapping, you're going to clap probably. Right. Or if the people standing around you, like they stand up. I think up, part of what he looked up. at was why is it that um, like you see crowds get violent and all of a sudden individuals will do inhumanely violent things that they would never do as individuals. Like right. when a riot kicks off and all of a sudden, not that I know an example of this, but someone gets skinned alive by the crowd, but it's like something <laughs> that people get sucked into the crowd. That's so let's just drastic, man. <laughs> so let, let's bring it back to Bastiat for a okay, second. Sure. I cherry picked what, what I enjoyed about reading Bastiat is that sometimes you think about things and you go, Oh, I'm a genius. I've pieced this idea together. And then there are Bastiat at moments. I want to call it drop the mic moments where it's like, Oh, this guy, 200 years ago had the perfect sentence on this idea and there's no reason for me to be ever talking about this because he nailed it like it's done drop the mic he hit it so before i cherry pick some of the things that i thought were really brilliant ideas i'm going to hand it over to you the philosophy professor (laughs) to lay a little education on us on firstly what he put forward that was so kind of revolutionary in thought and then if you want to cherry pick some of the big ideas that you think are just really worthwhile well, let me just put it this way. Um, the the thing that I find about Bastiat that's really curious is that he's right on the edge of natural law philosophy. So natural law philosophy began back in uh, with St. Augustine, basically. He was the first one to really give a pretty clear articulation of what natural law philosophy is. And natural law philosophy basically is this. It's very simple. There are three natural human rights, the right to life, the right to liberty, and the right to property. That's it. And so um, you have the right to defend all of those aspects, those dimensions of yourself. So I think what Bastiat is doing here is he's taking a look at law where it's supposed to be just upholding the natural law. And that's the natural law that he inherited from St. Augustine. It went to like through the pretty much through the Catholic tradition up to St. Thomas Aquinas and then from St. Thomas Aquinas into uh, the scholars at the University of Salamanca in Spain. And um, that was like 1500s. And then, you know, it gets passed on to John Locke. And in, I think it was 1698 when John Locke published the Second Treatise on Government. Um, which is where like we get the famous quotes from John Locke, you know, life, liberty, and property, and that's what most influenced uh, Thomas Jefferson. So from there, we get then like the French tradition of Bastiat and then the English tradition of people like the anarchists like Lysander Spooner. So what, what, what Bastiat was doing was he's attempting to preserve a certain type of minarchism that's based on a natural law formula so that the the government should only be there. It should only be in existence to protect the right to life, liberty, and property, nothing else. It shouldn't provide any welfare. It shouldn't provide any bonuses or services like unemployment. All that stuff um, has nothing to do with the government. Roads, like not not even close so it's just protection it's just like basically the military and maybe the police and the sewer system and the court system and the justice system and things like that so so bastiat was um and let me let me just draw a quote from page two (laughs) if you're if, if anybody wants to look at at bastiat's the law it's available for free on uh Mises.org, and on page two of that particular printing, he says, existence, faculties, assimilation, in other words, personality, liberty, property, this is man. It is 
of these three things that it may be said, apart from all demagogic subtlety, that they are anterior and superior to all human legislation. It is not because men have made laws that personality, liberty, and property exist. On the contrary, it is because personality, liberty, and property exist beforehand that men make laws. What then is law? As I have said elsewhere, it is the collective organization of the individual right to lawful defense. Okay. So now here's what's interesting. There are about a hundred, not a hundred. I'm going to say that there are about 10 really brilliant ideas that Bastiat puts forward. And I was going to run through them and go, here's all the things that he puts forward that I think are unbelievable. Well, some of them, he's got arguments against socialism. He's got arguments against how law turns into plunder. He's got arguments about voting and how voting just becomes a way to basically um, use laws that you can plunder others and the way that government has a nature of expanding. There's a lot of ideas in here that I couldn't state better. Also, what you were saying a minute ago, that when law becomes a mechanism also for morality and the law itself is evil um it creates a almost a structure by which like man wants to live a moral life and if they don't agree with like the morality of law they're kind of stuck within a framework where it's like you're kind of lost because it's like all right listen i'm kind of ranting here but you just brought up in your opening the one part that i kind of don't agree with him and so I want to break that down a little bit. Cool. We're, we're going to have it out. We're going to argue here. Let's do it. Okay. So I think in the conversation of just generally speaking of minarchy versus anarchy, um, there are two approaches to kind of people being libertarian. And I'm not talking in absolutes here. These are things that I just kind of think about. So the first is I think some people are libertarians because they stand by like the non-aggression principle and it's just a moral, it's kind of a moral stance of no one should ever aggress about against anybody. There is no concept of the greater good. And so the idea that like any kind of like a judicial body can step in and manufacture law that would be for the greater good, that would include a force factor. It, it, is not moral. Anytime we're forcing something upon someone, it's not moral. Right. Okay. I'm not saying that that is accurate or inaccurate. I Emotionally, I'm not attached to it. The argument that I find more emotional attachment to is what works. And so I find that freedom and liberty is a better structure by which um, people can cooperate and that all of society excels. If force worked as a mechanism, I might be accepting of it. Now, there, I, I can't tell you an example or a structure or the particular circumstance by which, like, forcing something. About, the best example I ever thought of was if you could give a pill to a heroin addict that they woke up in the morning no longer addicted. Can you force that pill upon them? So in the libertarian model, the answer would be no. You can't force anything upon anybody. Um, in that specific example, I might say... I think the guy would, would say thank you tomorrow. Now, let's just, okay. Now, here's what I want to say is my issue. The people who take the moral stance of I'm a libertarian because you can't force anything upon anybody, so that is a different argument than libertarian works better. Those are two different things. Now, what he does throughout a lot of this document is he puts forward that if you have a government, 
government expands in a way that it starts um, basically uh, plundering, and so it becomes a negative, and that freedom allows people to be more prosperous. Now, my problem with that is that that's a different argument than, like, in other words, the other way to look at it is imagine if force, I'm sorry, imagine if the pure libertarian principle, the non-aggression principle, actually left a lot of people destitute. Like, let's just imagine for a second, we actually had a world where everyone accepted the non-aggression principle, and the result was what people fear, that the wealthy are extremely wealthy, and they get to live completely separated from the destitute, and the destitute have no chance for prosperity, and we can objectively say that when it comes for the masses of mankind, this structure doesn't work. So a pure libertarian would still say, well, the highest, the highest value is that we don't impose force on free people. And so even though there's massive amounts of um, desti- people who are destitute here, we're, we're keeping the structure. So you see what I'm saying? That there's got to be, to me, there's a separation of two ideas here of one, what, what works for like the mass amount of mankind Right. And the moral philosophy of the non-aggression principle. So you're talking about the distinction between having a principled viewpoint and a utilitarian viewpoint. Like the utilitarian would be what works. Right. Principled is we will not break this regardless. Yes. Okay. Where do I stand on that? No, or no, no. So I, I'm just saying. Is, uh, uh, well, no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm actually gonna rant a little more. <laughs> okay. So that's, that's totally cool. <laughs> so I'm just gonna put forward that show. the. The, the the first thing that I was just a little bit annoyed with, we're going to work in reverse, is that as you move forward with this document, a lot of the arguments that he makes is that the model of force by government actually does not create the most good right. and that the freedom model would create more good. Right. And so as he has that conversation, he's moving away from his initial argument, which is that um, there's a natural right of people's right to freedom, and so law should only exist for protecting that natural right. That is a different argument than the argument of protecting that natural right would create the most good. So to me, there's like already just a little bit of a break from his original standpoint of why is this important, and then the arguments that he puts forward, which is this works better, but the fact that it works better is not really the reason why he would say that we should keep it. But I think that he does say that um, both, you know, it's like, it's, it's for the principled reason, but it's also cause it would work better. And I think that probably, but it shouldn't matter. I'm saying if you want to take argument a as for principled reasons, this is a higher more moral value. Yeah. Then when you make the B argument, which is more emotional of, Hey, I also think my system will work better. You're selling people on it. But if you really believed in the A argument, there's kind of no reason for the B argument. Not necessarily true. Okay. Because the A argument might be why this is a superior moral system and why you should believe this, but you would make the B argument because you know that not everybody's going to be able to understand the A argument. So then, okay, if the, but so what you're also saying though is that the B argument is a sales tactic for the A argument. Yeah, so if I'm yeah, so exactly. I'm going to be honest, if I'm reading and okay, maybe this is shitty, maybe this is being too critical, but when I'm reading like philosophy, I'm like I want to hear your argument and that's it. And so when he starts throwing in the B argument, I'm like, well that's not supporting what your initial claim was. And so I'm having a hard time just evaluating well, your a, logical, a claim. You're a logical person. 
So you're not like most people. Right. You can understand the A argument and you're like, I want more of the A argument and why this is right. like why this is gonna benefit me in a objective way. Like how can I how can I incorporate this into my life to add value to my life? Um so you don't need the sales pitch. Like you're you're you wanna be convinced logically and rationally why something is going to make your life better. Most people don't respond to logical rational. That's true. It, it's like you can you can present to them like this is this is non-aggression like it's not good to steal from your neighbors it's not good to plunder you know the 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 city uh to satisfy your own preferences and desires like whatever it is that you want you want you want some kind of bonuses you want some kind of whatever uh it doesn't matter you can only make that argument to someone who already believes that it's wrong to steal but people like unfortunately this is the reality and having dealt with students for 20 years <laughs> If they can cheat, they will. Right. If they can steal, they will. And Bastiat makes this incredibly like valid claim. He says, uh, let me see if I can find it quickly. Yeah, I think it's on page three. He says... Can I build off that? Wait. Yeah. Let me just read this. Sure. Um... Wait, no, no, no. I, I, you go ahead with your point because... I, okay, so on your I've, your note that people, it. if they can, they'll steal, and people, if they can, they can cheat. So Basiat says, yeah, yeah. and I'm going to reread it. This was the translation that I got. Oh, Life, liberty, and property. It. Okay, you go first. Yeah, I found it. Yeah, it's on page five for anybody following from the Mises um, version. He says, um, but there's also another disposition which is common to them. This is to live and to develop when they can at the expense of one another. This is no rash imputation emanating from a gloomy, uncharitable spirit. History bears witness to the truth of it by the incessant wars, the migrations of races, sectarian oppressions, the universality of slavery, the frauds in trade, and the monopolies with which its annals abound. This fatal disposition has its origin in the very constitution of man, in that primitive and universal and invincible sentiment that urges it towards its well-being and makes it seek to escape pain. Man can only derive life and enjoyment from a perpetual search and appropriation, that is, from a perpetual application of his faculties to objects or from labor. This is the origin of property." but also he may live and enjoy by seizing and appropriating the productions and the faculties of his fellow men. This is the origin of plunder. So then we get the, the, the origin of property and plunder, and he goes on to say in the uh, pages that follow that it is the case that people, wherever possible, will seek the easiest possible way, like water. Like water will always seek the easiest path to or, towards its uh, destination. People don't want to. People. people what he says is <laughs> people naturally are lazy. Yes. And so I, I, I I've said it a little differently than him, but I agree hundred percent with that point. I think it's one of the more profound things he says. I find force is the world's greatest motivator, and when you have things like personal responsibility, and that the only way that you can pull yourself up from poverty is by hard work, work you will do so. And the reason why I acknowledge that is because I'm lazy by nature. I will always look for the easy way out and I only show up and work every day because I don't have a choice. And so that's what basically the argument he's saying is that most people are like me. 
They're lazy by nature, and if they have an option to plunder other people, that's what they're going to do. And so you need to create a system by which people have no choice but to work because that's the only way that they're going to do it. The system already exists. It's called nature. If you don't work, you don't fucking eat. So yes. there's a difference between compulsion by necessity yes. and coercion by government. Right. That, But in other words, just if you create a structure by which government can... Um, take from people so that certain individuals don't have to work they're always gonna they're always gonna play that card people are lazy so if Absolutely. we create this power structure by which some people don't have to work because they can mooch off of others they're gonna mooch off of others it's because of the necessity of compulsion that people feel the need for coercion so yeah because, because the pressure that's put on you if you like let's just assume or imagine for a moment that there's no government there's no society there's nothing you don't work, you don't eat, you don't hunt something down and kill it, you're not going to survive very long. So um, people unfortunately confuse the necessity, like, like, I need to eat, I need to breathe, I need to drink water, I need to do these sorts of things. And so they confuse the necessity of, of, of nature with the coercion of government. Like if the government says something is necessary, it's necessary that you pay your taxes. It's necessary that you drive on the right-hand side of the road. It's necessary that you do... It's like, no, those are made-up necessary things. Like, they're not actually necessary. Um, So there's, like, being able to tell the difference between what is necessary by nature and what is necessary in accordance with, like, the government laws and and constitutions and all the rules and rig and roll and all that bullshit. Um, I think that it's very important to tell those two things apart and then, like okay, so you need to get a job. Well, you don't need to get a job with this particular company, but you need to get a job because you need to eat. Like, so you need to pay your bills. So there are certain things that are like embedded in the way that we structure our lives, but it's ultimately based on the fact that there is necessity in nature. But the the way that structures are built have to do more with, um, I, I think they have to do more with greed. And so, like, you know, big supports big, big government, big business, big government, big business. And so big, 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 all the way up. Um, so, yeah. Okay. So let's go off of, because I, I, I think you might already be starting to answer my question here. Okay. Um, but what you see as being kind of laws in nature. So here's the way that this was put, at least in the translation that I read. But he says, life, liberty, and property do not exist because men have made laws. On the contrary, it was the fact that life, liberty, and property existed beforehand that caused me- that caused men to make laws in the first place. Right. Now, my question on that is that, to me, it's not a natural formation, and that without laws to secure it, they wouldn't exist. Like, people have to congregate and agree that, hey, us not aggressing against each other should be the norm. It's not a rule in nature the same as I need to breathe. Like, in other words, there's a rule in nature. Hey, if I don't ingest oxygen, I'm not going to continue to breathe. When it comes to the laws of, hey, we're all better off here if we don't aggress against each other, that's something that collectively people have to agree on. No. Okay. (laughs) No. This is the fun part of natural law. Um, If I had a chalkboard in front of me, I would draw two little... Uh, divisions, I would put natural law and then like a branch, like a upside down Y. And then on the one side, I would put physical natural law and the other Mm -hmm. side, I would put um, moral natural law. So on physical natural law, if you jump off the top of this building, you're going to die. Well, you're going to at least break your legs. (laughs) You're not going to survive injury free. That's for sure. But you probably die. 
Um, so that's just a natural law. It doesn't matter what your gender is. It doesn't matter what your race is. It doesn't matter what your religion is. It doesn't matter. The concrete anything. doesn't give a shit. The concrete cares not. You're about. not going to go up to heaven and go, the concrete just killed me because I was black. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Or, or bald or whatever. You know, hey, you know well, why do you have you to know? turn it personal? Um, <laughs> if your fans don't know that already, I'm sorry. <laughs> but it's a, yeah, no, like the concrete doesn't care. I mean, right. I think Ben Shapiro says facts don't care. You know, like, yeah. it, concrete doesn't care. So you can look at the natural law the same way that you can look at the moral natural law. So there's a natural law tradition in physics and in morality, in ethics. So I, okay, so then that is a new concept to me that you're going to have to educate me. What does that mean that there's a natural law in morality? We didn't invent it. It's not up to us. It's embedded our, in our nature. So just like it's embedded in the nature of a squirrel to seek out nuts. It's embedded but in... But then wouldn't the fact that chaos and amorality exist suggest that it's not embedded in our nature? No, it is because... Uh, and here's the greatest example that was given by St. Augustine. Even robbers don't want to be robbed. Sorry, your name is Rob, but um, even even burglars don't want to be burgled. <laughs> Let me... But that's not entirely even true because... don't want to be murdered. However... The person who's most powerful is okay living within a structure by which the most powerful can take because they benefit from it. So in other words, the natural law would be people like whatever will benefit them the most. However, enough people can get together and almost say, we can, we can almost like an insurance policy, we can mitigate risk right. here. But they Instead wouldn't want of it making done to themselves. Like, that's the whole point. Is it, you're right. You're absolutely correct about that last point you were making. Like, we can incorporate, and that's, that's precisely the point that Lysander Spooner makes in the second part of his treatise on natural law, where he says that the government is a conspiracy of uh, brigands and robbers and pirates to basically... Um, uh, Plunder, plunder. So I actually got to say, uh, this is going to sound fiercely negative, and it's it's more negative than I intended to be, and it's not going to shed a good light on me. But I'm going to say it. That's fine. We were joking around in the car today that in working in sales, sometimes you actually respect. Okay, my personal the way I approach sales is. I try and be honest and provide value, and I find that in providing value. Um, that's where I, that's where I make the most money. People pay me to provide value. It's, it, it's almost like, um, game theory. It's usually not a one-time game. Firstly, I, I don't, I don't enjoy going to sleep at night feeling like I took someone's money. I don't benefit from that. It doesn't make me feel good. I like to be paid because I've done something well for someone. And that's really the way I structure my business. With all that being said, there are still tricks that need to be used in sales where for the most part, I work in marketing. Marketing works hopefully all the time, and you got to sell it like it's an absolute, and sometimes there are some misses. That's the reality of selling marketing. So, and also, sometimes you even have to like use those tricks to get people to do things that are in their bone best interest. Okay, listen, we, we could debate the morality on that all we want. So with what I just said, I can tell you that when people lie to me, even for a negative, we were talking about this in the car. Sometimes we respect. We go, oh, that's a sales guy. Good for that guy. Wow, that guy had some balls that he just said that. So I would almost say that the people that are thieves and they respect the structure of thievery, even when they get cheated, they go, well, this is the natural order that I like because I still come out ahead within the thievery model. 
So I don't know that you can project onto it thieves, murderers, or maybe even rapists that since because they don't like, because in other words, there still can be a net gain. You could be like a pretty good thief and there's a better thief and he, you lose some of your income to the better thief. But in the long term, you're actually coming out ahead with the thievery model. And so you go, hey, I like a thievery model. But the, the point that I'm saying here is to say that there's a natural law. What you're really saying is that because we can all understand I don't want bad to happen to me, we understand that there's a a, um, a natural order within the world that like bad shouldn't be bestowed on people. I don't know that that's a logical line of consistency to say that it's a natural it's a natural order in the same way I need to breathe in order to exist. That's a great argument. And I think that um, what I would say to that is that it's still principle. Okay, so you're you're arguing from a utilitarian standpoint when you say that. Like, I want a thievery model. If you're like a really good thief, like you're fantastic, you're the best but at I, it. I, listen, I'm telling you my end point, like when we get to the bottom here, I agree with Bastiat. I just come at it from a different perspective. And I see what But you, I'm saying if I'm just yeah. walking logically through this line and saying, hey, law is a deduction from natural order, to me, it's more <laughs> that no, man congregates and goes, law benefits society. Now, the problem with that is that if you're going to take that line of reasoning that law doesn't exist until people get together and say, hey, we're better off with law, then you can also make the argument that because law is created by the masses and benefits the masses, like the masses can make a decision that like since uh, that even force can be used if it's is a protection of the masses which can go as far as to say like burning the witch that if everyone's convinced that a witch is bringing ill upon people you can burn the witch because it's all about having structure that that exists for the greater good so i'll tell you why i don't believe in that but just to me his structural argument is the starting point of we can deduce that like law exists and then therefore since it already exists, we should only have it as a protection. To me, it only exists once everyone accepts it and then puts it into action. Well, um, we're confusing two different concepts of law here. Okay. So there's the natural law, which is embedded in nature. That's why it's called natural law. It's 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 part and parcel of... Let's say you don't breathe, you die. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's natural law. You, you sit on attack, you bleed from your ass. You jump off a building, you break your legs. You drown underwater. Like, that's natural law. Um, robbers don't want to be robbed. That's also not natural law. Okay, so then there's positive law. Positive law is what Congress does. That's what lawyers do. Well, let me ask you this. So he says, here's his language, at least as translate. On the contrary, it was the fact that life, liberty, and property existed beforehand that caused men to make laws. And life, liberty, and property do not exist because men have made laws. Right. Okay, so let's imagine for a second you had a universe without a single man here. So do these principles exist? Yes. Well, I don't... Bears kill other bears or lions well, kill it's, lions. It's, okay. So it's not like... <laughs> no, wait, this is the... Does a tree make a sound when it falls I mean, this forest? is this like, is similar. That's the whole thing. Yeah. Is what you're saying. If there are no human beings, is there such a thing as natural law? And the answer, I guess, in that case would have to be no because nature, human nature, is it Okay, like, so, then, so then let's go one degree past that. Let's evolved human beings, I'm sure... Organized what, you're in a more evolution. I don't. No, I don't uh, assume that. Fine. Let, let's not assume evolution. Let's just assume at some point in time, can you and I? I mean, we can even look at modern history. There were cultures that did not, that are yes. not as evolved as we are now. True. So, if anything, it's like 
in our own deduction, we created the law, which then had a civilizing or a pacifying effect. But to say, listen, you take you take human beings out of the equation. You can't look at animals and go, hey, there's a natural law here of what he describes as life, liberty, and property. But now if you even looked at a earlier organization of mankind, let's say two people 3,000 years ago run into each other in the African desert or whatever. Are they going to be cooperative? I don't know. Or like you look at tribal countries right now, but to say that man by nature like has this embedded in them, the same, like to me, natural law would be, I I mean, or I would take the argument that natural law is like, if I breathe, I die. It's like wired into my brain. This is not wired into my brain. You have to think about breathing though, but you do have to think about organization. Like that's no, but then once we have to think about it, then it becomes something that man creates. It's not something. Yes. So, if man creates it... But man creates it based on principles, just like man creates bridges based on certain principles. Like, you can't get your angles or your tensile strengths wrong in the materials that you use, or it's going to fucking collapse. So, you know, it's the But even that... Thing. Okay, even that's circular, because you're saying, since we benefit, because that's still a benefit art, like, okay. in engineering, I benefit because I can see yes. that these structures allow me to build a bridge. So what you're really saying is that it's by creating a law of cooperation, we benefit from it, and so therefore I can well, do that since it's beneficial, no, it's, it's something that we should of, do. It's a fact of nature. No, nobody. No, it's not a fact of nature. It's a nothing, fact. Yeah, there's nothing in nature that says you should build a bridge. Well, there's w- stuff in fine, nature what that is there, says you can build a bridge. Let me say this. So then, what fact in nature exists that because something creates human benefit, it should be done? Nothing. Nothing. There's nothing that says so then that. So then, there is no natural law. No, no. It. There's that a certain, we should there's have a, laws. There's a certain thing that... that but you, you understand what I'm saying, that the law only exists because we choose to invest in it because there's benefit to society. N- no. It's not that it's like some, I, I, some thing that's it's just... Not, yeah. It's not that. It's not that. It's, it's way deeper than that. Okay. Because it has to do with not doing things, not, not, not actively doing something, but not doing something. So not killing... Okay, so the right to life yeah. is not killing people. How much energy does it take you to not kill people? Like... No, it doesn't cost you anything. So, but even that... Not even that, enslaving so, people. Wait, wait, hold on. Even that's not entirely true because that's circumstantial. Now, I'm almost never put confronted by a situation where I have to control my urges to not kill someone. I can't even think of one time in my life where I was like, I'm going to kill this person, get them away from me. Right. However, people do end up in those circumstances. I think they're more often than not because of a cheating spouse or that someone robbed you in a way that was so obscene that you felt like you wanted to murder them. You have a right to defend yourself and your property. Cheating wife is not like... I don't know. That might be your property. I'm not going to make that argument. (laughs) (laughs) Harrington's all for it. (laughs) No, if your wife chooses to cheat on you, I don't think it gives you a right to kill your wife. No, but if you've entered into a sacred bond, if you're actually married, if you're dating a person and they cheat on you, it's different than if you're married. All right, and that's a whole other can of worms. If you want to go there, I will. But uh, I... Uh, like for the for the sake of this particular issue, I think that life, liberty, property, you know, is there is there... Uh, you can you can use you can use force to protect yourself against the initiation of force. So you can use violence to protect yourself against violence, but you're not the one starting the problem. So if somebody comes to your 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 house, somebody tries to take your wife or your kids or your stuff or whatever, you have the right to protect that. So um, I fully wholeheartedly 
argue that you can use uh, violence. It's the non-aggression principle. It's not the non-force principle. So you can use force, but only in response to force. Okay, let me ask an entirely different question here. Okay. When he says it's a natural formation, so if you remove God, let's just say that this is not something that we're saying as deduced that it was God-given, would you still put this forward? We yes, absolutely. And you don't you do not need a god figure to have natural law. Okay. Just like you don't need God to have gravity either. Because I was gonna also put forward that if you read the Bible, it it is not consistent with the God of the Bible. This idea. Well, that's fine. I mean, I think it is, but um, but we don't have to get into that argument because <laughs> you, you need, said that without you, God. Well, because all you need is nature. All right. Mm-hmm. So even atheists know that gravity exists, right? You don't need God, so uh, you don't need God to know that robbery is wrong, or rape is wrong, or murder is wrong. Like, because you wouldn't want it done to yourself. Like the the whole golden rule thing. As as much as that's tossed about, it's actually really relevant and good. Okay, I got one other wild argument to throw at you. Right on. Buddy. You ready? Okay. Yeah. So another line he has, and the common force that protects this collective right cannot logically have any other purpose or any other mission than that for which it acts as a substitute. So in other words, he says that since law comes about and it's just supposed to be here to protect individual right, so even as it might gain you know, in size, it should never do anything other than that. Right, and this is where I disagree with... I mean, I, this is where I have differences with Bastiat. Okay. Because I think that... I mean, I'm an anarchist. I don't believe that there should be any positive law. I believe that a society organized in accordance with natural law is all we need. I believe Lysander Spooner is correct on that. And we can have a legal system. We can have a court system. We can have a prison system. We can have all of that without a government. It's completely possible, and I'll tell you how if you want. Um, But uh, Bastiat seems to think that like there's still these minimal functions of government that are necessary so you need to have like you know at least you need to have police forces and 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 protective military forces and things like that um so i think that what he's doing is blurring natural law from positive like with positive law so he's kind of confusing and tangling these things together natural law is simply the protection of the rights to life liberty and property the right to not be killed the right to not be enslaved or uh assaulted or injured or kidnapped and the right to not have your stuff stolen or vandalized like that's it that's what three natural rights are when it comes to adding like adding on to that and this is the united nations is guilty of this every politician is guilty of this where they start adding rights on like you have a right to a job you have a right to an education you have a right to a car you have a right to a phone you have a right to um i i don't know like you name it you have a right to it now and there's like 64 rights that the United Nations uh, elaborates. And so I think that what like Bastiat is trying to say here is like, like there's a very limited number of rights. The government exists only to protect those rights. And um, all the other so-called things that laws are like designed to do, like give people relief. For, if you have like billionaires or you have like a bunch of billionaires and you have a bunch of really poor people, it's not designed to reallocate wealth. It's not designed to redistrib- redistribute what people have done with their talents and resources. It's designed for one and only one thing, and that is to defend. Now, unfortunately, Bastiat didn't seem to realize that a government that is designed only to defend one's rights will 
inevitably expand to be the largest government on well i think um that to me the is the I, that to me is the most interesting kind of um part of kind of the minarchy versus anarchy conversation um and so for here like i said there's a lot of brilliance in this and to me i would just kind of more i would more put it within the formation similar to what you said is that the problem is any law that exists to do anything other than just kind of protect the rights of the individual um, will ultimately become perverted and ever expanding. And so from a functional standpoint, we can't have it. But that that to me is still more of the utilitarian argument than it is the um, moral argument of that there's some idea of a natural right. It's more that this government thing won't work. Now, in terms of the minarchy-anarchy thing... What I find interesting, or I, I, I continue to kind of think about in my head, um, is let's say what we know that once we have a government, it seems to expand towards corruption. So let's just say that once you're at number one, one becomes infinity, and, and that's a negative, right? The question, though, and I think this is the fear of most, most people in accepting anarchy, is how do we know that zero won't grow to one? Like, how do we know that absent of a government, somebody doesn't come in and basically create a government, and then you end up with this ever-expanding? And so the question is, can you have something that you limit by laws so that it doesn't become ever-expanding, and so at least there's order to it, versus if we leave it at zero, maybe you end up with something that starts from chaos and just, you know, is negative from the beginning and is ever-expanding. And now, I don't think we're going to answer that on on this podcast. I think that, to me, is... um, and also why to me it's more about what works than it is about um, like the moral principle of the non-aggression principle. But in application, because me and Dave have debated this on the podcast, I also think that you need to have an opt-out clause. I don't really think government should be forced upon people. Like I think even within my model, you should be able to go somewhere else and experiment with your own ideas, which you could then define as anarchy. And that's why... This is all kind of above my comprehension because I end up with more questions than I do answers. Well, this is like, I mean, we're, we're in the age now of subscriptions. You know, you subscribe to Netflix and Hulu and you subscribe to, uh, I mean, I have a bunch of sub- subscriptions to various like places where I buy food and, and you know, like just information. It's, it's great. So you subscribe. So we're in the subscription world now. So why wouldn't we be able to subscribe to citizenship? Like if I want to subscribe to Canada's health system or something like that, like why can't I just mail myself? I think what's great about what you're proposing, what I like about it and why I've said, let's have government be as local as possible is then you force it to compete to actually see what works. Well, exactly. So like if, if, if we're all subscribed to, let's say the United States of America, then they must be doing something right. Right. And someone else can come in and compete and start offering what would be a total libertarian structure. Or I, I actually, Here's kind of my, I, I, it's kind of my philosophy on government. I think part of any structure working is people opting into it, and it's not just opting into it; it's being excited about it. So right. I think like there's a version of communism that can work for some people yes. if they want to work towards it working. Well, guess but if what? you force any structure upon <laughs> anybody, they don't want to contribute towards it because that's not what like it's the same what we were saying with education. Voluntary yeah. communism has been around for a long time. It's called being a monk or a nun. Yeah, you know, like those people live in in voluntary communes, like they choose that 
And if they, that's what they want, it's not political, so it's not forced. I also sometimes wonder if like there's a yin and yang to everything, and man being servitude to a government is one of like those things that might just be there's some sort of a permanent relationship where it's like there is no man never being servitude serving to something so it's just kind of like how do you find the balance to it it's it's almost like uh there's like I, I don't know there's a lot of things in life that kind of exist in that way I, I i wonder if like the idea that we can exist totally absent of government maybe that there is some sort of a natural order in the world of like that people kind of need to be servitude of something and so like they will always kind of somewhat either organize under government or panic if it isn't there and it's kind of more of a gray area where it's like a yin yang thing but like i said these are like these are bigger ideas than i have answers for well i have multiple responses to that yeah my first response is uh why wouldn't people just serve god you know like maybe people created the government because they lost faith in god that's possible because like on the same note so i think there's a lot of people that a service of God model would work. However, even with the service of God model, then people come forward and say, well, I'm the expert on how service of God should work. And so I'm going to put forward the laws. And then all of a sudden you basically end up with a legal framework. It's a legal framework underneath the banner of, well, here is what our religious leaders say is service of God. But now you're essentially within a government structure. Only when you accept it. Okay. But I'm saying the people that don't accept that, they're probably going to come up with some sort of a different model, which will be service of government. So just, I I don't think people are necessarily comfortable with um, the total, like, all right. Well, when you shop at, I mean, when you shop at the Walmart or the Target or I don't know where the hell you shop, but like wherever you shop, (laughs) you know, do you feel like you're serving them when you shop at their place? No, but that's because it's a very um, small aspect of my life that I choose to buy one, like I might go into a Walmart once a year. Interacting with government is something that you basically do, like or interacting with God or not interacting with God. That's in a framework for your entire life. Government is, or, or uh, interacting with God is a choice. Interacting with government is not a choice. Like, so that's well, the difference. Interacting with God, you've still made a negative choice that I'm not going to interact with him. And so that still is something that changes the framework for your entire life. Right, right. But so like I'm saying interacting that the, the, with the government, yeah. you can't choose to not interact with the government because they will come and catch you and throw yes. you in jail. Yes. So you can't, like, I can choose to not have a relationship with God if I wanted to, mm-hmm. but I can't choose to not have a relationship with the government. Right. And so, I mean, I think that it's weird because the government was, in some sense, like, created to replace God. And St. Thomas More saw this very clearly, which is why he wrote the book called Utopia. If you ever want to talk about that okay. game, it's a fun book. You'd love we'll it. We'll jam out on that one the next time. I'll send you a link. All right. So I want to give you the floor for closing remarks here to give us the closing statement of what you want people to take away from Bastiat or why I'm completely wrong with everything I've put forward as arguments here. I think to me, like I said, go and read this. I think within my structure, which seems to be more of the way you've categorized it as being more utopian in nature, he puts forward incredible arguments for why the government system of mechanical plunder is negative for everybody 
and the way that it becomes corrupted. And so every one of those arguments against socialism and against reliance on government, I agree with every single one of them. The first two paragraphs, which are kind of his starting point, I'm making a technical argument against, but the reality is him and I are coming to the same the same place. But I give you the floor. Well, you're, you're coming to the conclusion from a utilitarian standpoint, and yes. he's arguing from a principled standpoint, but you come to the same conclusion. Yes. So that's a good point. So he says, I mean, I love, I love the first sentence of the law. It's just the law perverted exclamation point. You know, like it's so great. He's passionate and he's saying that law is not being used the way that law is supposed to be used. So the way that Bastiat sees it is that law is supposed to be used to uphold the natural law to articulate, to specify the natural law, nothing more. It's not supposed to be making arbitrary rules for you shouldn't vape anymore because vaping is dangerous and there's all these flavors that are attracting young teenagers. Like that's that's a bunch of nonsense according to Bastiat. So Bastiat does not see the law as like curtailing or curbing or micromanaging people's behaviors. Um, Bastiat sees the law as upholding the natural law, the right to life, liberty, and property. That's it, nothing more. And he says this one really important thing, which is at the top of uh, page five, for those of you on the Mises um, printout of this, he says, the law has been perverted through the influence of two very different causes. So he's recognizing that positive law that is the law that's made by lawmakers, uh, human law, okay, which isn't real law according to natural law tradition, it's legislation. Uh, he says that there, it's been perverted to two, by two very different causes, naked greed and misconceived philanthropy. That is a key to this whole understanding of why the law has become what it's become. Why has our legal system become dedicated to um, basically... Well, what I love about that is that people love the sale <laughs> of that um, gov- one government's going to take care of you or that like government's doing some moral good but really what they're fighting for is power and resources and so like this is like the healthcare argument well government surely government needs to provide healthcare to power it's a charitable argument because we want to be charitable by nature and so that appeals to a lot of people and so him as far back as 200 years ago was telling you when they're making these arguments that it's based off of charity there it's not it's really just a form of plunder yeah, precisely. And that's exactly uh, naked greed and misconceived philanthropy are the two motivations, the two excuses that they use to... Um, well, it's a sales tactic. It's because those are things that people agree about. with. And so it's a way of kind of getting people to buy into um, the morality of government. All right. This was an absolute fucking blast. For everyone who like hung this. out with us through this whole thing, I hope you <laughs> learned something. I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan of Frank Zappa, and what I love about Frank Zappa records is you listen to them, and sometimes the earlier tracks, he's fucking jamming. Yeah. He's playing things like "Keep It Grease," so we'll go down easy. He's playing things like "The Muffin Man." He's playing like uh, some of these, uh, like really almost things that could have been. Uh, um, there's the slime on the radio. That could have been a radio hit. I don't know that it was. I don't think you're familiar with this song. I'm gonna import it right here. Great song. Anyways, but then sometimes at the back half of records, he would play this real symphony shit and he would go, hey, I know that you guys don't like this as much, but this is good for you. 
And so even me in prepping, what I'm telling you guys, we're going to be back with dick and fart jokes next week. And <laughs> what we try and do on here is give a variety. This is one of the pinnacles of libertarian literature, which is why I was like, okay, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to read this thing. And it wasn't easy for me to read. It wasn't easy for me to wrap my head around why it wasn't quite speaking to my logic. Can so, I just say one thing? Right I just want to, I would just want to say, no, yes. I, I was just going to say like for anybody who's interested in Bastiat, Read the first 25 pages and you're good to go of of the law and you know what Basiat's thinking. So thank you for coming on. We'll definitely thank pick you. another topic. I think the next time we'll have you on, we're not going to do it today because my brain is too fried, but I do want to talk about um, logical fallacies because I think that that's an important topic, just being able to recognize bad arguments. Yes. Um, and I think that there are a lot of them. I went through what you sent me, but there's still... I don't have quick recognition of bad arguments and so that's definitely gonna be the next one and you, you're launching a podcast so you will in the future i will in the future so you let us know we'll link it in the episode description we'll plug it thank, thank you, you again for coming on thank you so much rob